Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. Um, I'm actually really excited today, uh, if you can't tell. Um, I'm excited because today uh, we really get into, start to get into um, some of the real uh, blues artists who uh, uh, can coincide with the blues sound and really uh, start to build on that and welcome some of these that blues sound into the mainstream or commercial sector of music. Um, but before we get into that, um, I want to touch on one one um, event or important invention first, and that was the invention of electrical recording technology. Um, now, this is this is an invention, and um, even though you know it was invented in a specific year, a lot like some of the other uh, topics we covered, uh, like the Great Migration um, or Tin Pan Alley, these are concepts that span over you know several years and, and impact various areas of the timeline. So even though electrical recording technology, uh, you can kind of date it, it really dates to the invention of uh, sound amplification um, technology. Um, even though that was invented specifically specifically in 1924 and then was really implemented in 1925 and really started to impact the way musicians were able to record music, uh, you know, that it, that technology continues to really build all the way into, um, you know, even now, but specifically uh, later on um, in the 1960s and 70s and then on to the 80s as you know, it kept advancing. Um, but specifically regarding electrical recording technology, before um, this technology existed, um, when in a, when recording, um, bands actually had to gather around, you know, there's no electrical amplification. So you're basically just relying on the ability to capture a voice directly. And so um, bands or artists would have to gather around and like, in the studio around this uh, sound horn is what they usually called it and you know essentially you know just sing into that and you had to have that natural amplification in your voice uh, if you didn't then you know being a recording artist it was going to be very difficult um you could be an instrumental you know there's obviously it benefited certain instruments than, than others um so yeah people would gather um and then obviously that limits band size, because um, remember you can't, besides the capturing sound, also the editing ability was limited. You can't, you know, cut things up, you know, add sounds later. You know, you kind of almost had one shot, needed people to be able to, you know, that was a huge, that's something that they really looked for at the time is, um, you know, not only was recording, um, you know, a privilege um, at that point, you know, it was also an audition because you needed to be able to, you know, there's not many cuts, you know, you can't just basically every time you mess up, or if you did mess up, you know, that scraps an entire, you, know, you have to physically like throw away and, you know, redo a whole, um, I believe they, they start recording on, I guess they call them cylinders. Um, but you know, things were, it was, you're essentially physically engraving, um, um, objects to record at the time so it was a, a lot more um, it was a lot more involved and you really had one take and that was a huge 
part of the recording is- industry, and I think that was a huge part of why uh, so many people we we look we started off with W. C. Handy and uh, Mommy Smith in the previous episode, and a lot of that was that previous performance experience, that discipline and training. Um, you know, you can re- pe- people felt comfortable inviting those people in and performing, even though. As we discussed, they're not necessarily who we thought of as blues musicians. Um, they were experienced performers, and people brought these uh, individuals in because they were reliable, and you, you, they you knew what uh, you could get. Uh, you knew you could get a high quality product out of them, basically. Um, so that was a big part of it. Um, so electrical recording technology um, really, uh, it really was based on or fueled by the invention of sound application. Um, And this, you know, of course, allowed uh, sound to be increased. You know, it's not just analog now. It's, uh, what is analog? It's not just uh, straight sound. People are able to increase levels and, you know, areas of instrumentation. And so that really changed the whole dynamics of um, recording. Um, You could bring in... uh, background vocals it wasn't just you know kind of focused on lead vocals or um, a small section of vocals you could highlight uh, people who had more subtle vocal tones and effects Um, same with instruments you could um, bring um, different instruments different parts different instruments to the forefront you know can kind of angle things and can you know that kind of brings in the layout of the studio as far as how you're positioning things in front of a microphone because before it was a horn now you're you're having a series of mics in the studio um, and you know that you know as you can imagine just uh, visually picture that you know definitely changes um, the whole the whole uh, atmosphere or structure of the studio going from people gathering around a horn to having microphones in the studio is a big uh, a big deal um, not only that um, that the invention of sound application continued to impact the way people consume music because at this point it's new, it's expensive. So recording studios and professionals are the ones who are going to be able to consume it. But also that, that also carried over to record players, you know, all this right now surrounding the invention of the record, uh, which was the phonograph record was invented by uh, Thomas Edison in 1877, I believe. And um, so all of this kind of continued to build on the re- the record player and being able to record onto records and that technology advancing and it becoming easier. And at this point with sound application, they've kind of, they've narrowed it down to the point where they're, e- they're able to produce records a little bit uh, more efficiently. But the actual uh, listening experience, once again, without sound application, you're kind of, you're just your um you know the the uh, sound is going to be a lot more flat you can't emphasize different parts and people so it's it's a completely different sonic you know experience as far as the frequencies and um what you're able to capture and then therefore on the consumer side what that speaker or whatever device you're listening to is playing back to you so eventually over time sound application became cheaper and more affordable and that hugely changed um people's listening experience as you can imagine but that the consumer experience even though people were already buying record players at this point they're expensive like i said on last episode people were essentially taking out installments to pay to purchase these record players 
And uh, so people were already buying them. But as far as the listening experience really getting better, it was a little bit more down the road um, for it to become uh, realistically affordable to the point where it became a, a popular product. Because um, you have to remember another another aspect that I'll talk about a little bit later when I talk about uh, Jack, o- Jack Cooper was that people on radio um, recording, as you can imagine at this point, is kind of a... Uh, it's a new technology and more so um, it's more so for the record industry to sell records and on radio mostly people were still performing live the radio was mostly taking in live acts to perform live performances people were not playing you know recorded it's not like someone's new album was out and they're just playing this album from a recording people were coming into the studio um that's you know same with covers cover bands people who were playing popular music all this was relying on uh live acts whether it's original music or uh covered music and that was a little that was a little bit different then if you look into the history of some of these artists um if you just look around a lot of people were there's copyright uh, laws were different. I'm not sh- exactly sure. I'm not an expert expert in that area, but but obviously, as you can t- as you can imagine, since recording was limited, a lot of people saw live and singing other people's music as you know one of the only ways to make music, and just the ability to just copy someone's music and quickly distribute it was not like a huge factor. You had to learn it and then perform it. Um, there was concerns with sheet music because that was a, a big way to pass music along at the time. Was uh, selling sheet music um, to people, which I talked about a little bit when talking about Tin Pan Alley. So, um, so yeah, as as I was kind of saying with the earlier artists, we saw a lot of people, if you look back at that time, a lot of people were just doing each other's music, essentially. Um, So things were looked at a a little bit differently. And as you get, we advance more into the recording age, that's when you see... um, people look differently when people are covering people's songs. It's a, you know, there was a more of an emphasis on artists within the community to do original music because playing other people's music now was becoming like, a, it's a big issue because all of a sudden, you know, you're playing, um, you're playing someone's music and it's, and not that you're necessarily claiming it's your own, but you're also not, it's not necessarily known. And then you're recording this record and making it bigger, making a bigger uh, commercial impact, making a bigger profit than perhaps the original artist, and that you know that's an issue, especially early on, early on when music genres are new and people just want to consume it, and they don't really necessarily, not necessarily concerned about who did what first. Um, anyways, so that's a little bit about the electric recording technology. Um, it's uh, as I said, it it co- continues to advance as we. Uh, progress, uh, but that's probably the only time I'll really bring it up until we get to hip hop, because that's when we end it, end up in the digital age, and that, of course, you know, completely changes everything. It really almost shapes, defines uh, that genre of music. Um, but before that, as I said, I'm excited to uh, really get into true's blues musicians from really this point on, as long as we're talking about the blues genre specifically um previously you know wc handy mommy smith are not exactly known 
or even really identify as uh, pure blues musicians. As we talked about, they came from different backgrounds. And after, you know, moving forward, even once they made their blues hits, uh, arguably they were known for other genres and other areas of the entertainment industry. So to start off, um, we got Blind Willie Johnson. And Blind Willie Johnson is, uh, I think, a really great um, example to start off with. Um, once again, with these artists that I speak about today, these are people who, even though on the, they're on the timeline later, uh, Blind Willie Johnson, for example, is on the timeline at 1927. Uh, these guys uh, have been performing for a long time. And as I said also before, blues players like this, like Blind Willie Johnson and Charlie Patton, have been performing the blues for a while before, even during when W.C. Handy and other people were recording. It just wasn't brought in, and that and people like W.C. Handy kind of created that exposure, created that, uh, started to shape, open that market for people to kind of go out um, and find some of these, you know, kind of real uh, OG blues players who've been, you know, or really almost second generation. Some of the, you know, it's it's pretty close, but there is like a. And people are not exactly sure when the blues officially um, started. Uh, it kind of was thought at one point to be in the early 1900s, but then it kept going back and moving back. And I don't know if we'll find out since, you know, unfortunately, uh, many of those people who are from that area or who had stories from that area, you know, it's getting pretty late. And you know, not the whole issue to start out with was that so much of this was passed on orally and not written down. It's hard to say if we'll ever really know or have a solid date. But the people who taught Blind Willie Johnson or who they heard, um, you know, were not that much older, but you know, uh, about a generation older. So these guys are already almost a second generation of blues players, even though the blues was definitely still becoming a refined genre. So Blind Willie Johnson. Um, is an interesting person and another layer to this because another contrast to these musicians i'll speak about today and wc handy and mommy smith and some of the other fam more famous vocalists who may have had more expanded backgrounds just in entertainment and music in general you'll see that their history is much more uh much is documented much better um you know when i went through wc handy and mommy smith and specifically W.C. Handy, even though some of it is his is based on his word, um, you can see kind of his full life story documented pre-music, pre-blues, post-blues. Um, there's a lot of detail. Um, I don't believe there's any question about his birth date or death date. And those those details definitely are much more in question with people like Blind Willie Johnson. For example, Blind Willie Johnson who was indeed blind, um, he, the story about how he was blinded is sort of a, an area of legend. And that's kind of, and that kind of stuff is kind of, I think, a big attraction or a big, um, something that pulls people into the blues. Is some of it, some of it is just the lore. When you talk about people like Blind Willie Johnson, Robert Johnson, of course, is probably the most famous. And some of the, you know, kind of legend and maybe fantasy that kind of gets built up around them because there's a lack of history, clear documented history 
Um, but what Blind Willie Johnson, um, the most uh, popular, most the most common story you'll hear about how he was blinded was when he was seven years old. His mother was in an argument with his father, and somehow during during that uh, argument, um, his mother like throws or spills or something happens where lie, which I've never heard of lie, L-Y-E, it's pretty heavy stuff. It's pretty, um, I don't know if it's acidic, but it's very, um, what is it called? It'll, you know, eat, it's, it eats into your, you know, into tissue basically. But anyways, it's, he throws, she throws lie and it hits blind Willie Johnson in the eyes, which I mean, I don't know. I've never seen, um, or I'm, you know, obviously, photo- photographic technology at the time was pretty limited. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if you would think that maybe there would there would be other damage done. And I, I don't remember, never read anything about that. Um, but that is the most common legend. It might be the most dramatic, so that might be why it caught on, caught on. Um, or it could be because it's that's what happened. Uh, but the other stories that you'll hear about him are that he was blinded when because he had the wrong eyeglasses which is i don't know and uh there's another story where he was looking into an eclipse with like a piece of you know looking glass and you know he's looking directly in the eclipse so uh, of course the sun kind of uh messed messed up his his eyes blinded him so you know that that one story clearly has more detail and is engaging uh definitely i don't know if it's more tragic all of them are pretty tragic but um but yeah you know who knows um i think you can you can see though how the lack of documentation or engagement with these individuals um these it seems like based on these stories you would be able to kind of even from seeing the individual you might be able to kind of figure out which one is true which one isn't so it can tell you about the level of exposure um but these guys were able to get um uh recorded on unlike some of the early ones because that that opportunity that window was opened by some of the earlier performance there's curiosity um it was a new genre that people were starting to pick up wind on and they were allowed to get in the studio and i think you know that it wasn't documented not only because the earlier careers weren't documented but i think even for someone like wc handy they probably they weren't necessarily following him earlier before in his career either but i think there's a difference between when you're kind of a uh, underground unknown genre and you're kind of roughing it and seen as an outsider and you're not really recognized till later even though you might have a really good cult following or a really good build a pretty strong following commercial success um those people are not necessarily you know these music fans who are really engaged by your music are not necessarily going to have the same coverage as someone um in the entertainment industry who is uh seen as more uh, mainstream at the time like a wc handy or uh mommy smith or or even like the, a bessie smith or or Ma Rainey, who even though they were, some of them were more uh, entrenched in the blues genre, they had a more uh, uh, more of a, a presence in the entertainment industry. And I think there's a difference between when, like if I'm a really good fan, if I'm going to see like a, uh, 
if I'm excited to see like a you know Marcus King, Marcus King band is in town or Ron Ortiz, uh, I'm not thinking about you know finding out necessarily asking them about their history or their background at this point. I'm just like, wow, this is great music. This is uh, something new I haven't heard before. And so I think that is a huge difference. I think maybe a more of a journalistic presence was around documenting, you know, W.C. Handy, who was recognized in his time and after his time as a a major contributor. Uh, Anyways, back to Blind Willie Johnson. Um, He was um, really well known for his, he's from Texas, he was really well known for his um, his slide technique. That's really what set him apart. Uh, he was very religious. Um, he did some, in addition to playing on the streets when he was younger, because uh, that was one place you were able to play. Um, he also uh, apparently did some, some street preaching, a street preacher, and he was, uh, he was Baptist, and he played some in the church, and as I said, he did some other performances around, but he was, uh, he spent a lot of time in Texas, where he's from, in that area where he was from, and really built up his, his, uh, his playing catalog there, um, And because he was religious, um, it kind of contrasts his music stylings were very, all his songs, almost all of his songs had religious content. Um, So it was accepted not only in the blues community, but the gospel community, even though his playing style is clearly, uh, you know, it's more heavily associated with the blues, but but if you listen to the words and content, a lot of it is uh, kind of, preachy or um you know retelling stories from the bible um and you can you can kind of imagine that uh being blind uh, this was a huge important way for him to pass on his message uh through an oral tradition um he wasn't able to read the bible so a lot of you know, what he heard from other preachers and other uh religious discussion is really what he had and he had to kind of that he had to keep a uh, you know keep that in his memory and and hold on to those details and I think music is a great way to do that uh, which is I mean it was the case for a lot of um, black people at the time because at at this time there's limited education but at this point you know one way or another people were probably you know, this is post slavery one way or another people a lot of people were able to get an education um, even if it wasn't up to, I guess, uh, standards that people would expect. Um, so basic reading and reading and writing, though. Um, anyways, but for Blind Willie Johnson, obviously, uh, he has a disability. Um, and, you know, the, the ability to, to retain information, um, you know, it's, it's going to be different. Uh, well, to acquire and retain information, so I think that was a huge, a huge piece, um, and one of the reasons, besides his uh, individual beliefs and his ties to the community, and and uh, that he he really was uh, and did uh, enjoy preaching and passing on the gospel to others. Uh, he also 
it also was a form of, uh, it was also a way to remember um, And so, and because of this, uh, I think this is one of, because he was so deeply religious, um, it was interesting because the blues generally uh, was, I mean, not, al uh, not always, but a lot of blues musicians and blues music was not seen as appropriate by the church, by the black church, by the religious community overall, because a lot of taboo issues were covered just because of the background um, and the sort of journey that the blues took. A lot of, uh, a lot of unrest brought up a lot of social issues that you, you don't really talk about, brought a lot of relationship issues that you don't really talk about. And so uh, Blind Willie Johnson's music really permeated all areas uh, just because his content was acceptable and it was just really a new... Uh, playing style and his vocal uh, style is really unique. If you get a chance to listen to his vocal style, it, it's uh, something. It's very interesting, also. But, but what I was one of the main reasons that he I added him to the timeline, besides that he's just one of the early early people, blues musicians to get commercial success, was to highlight his slide playing technique, and generally he would either have a metal ring or he'd take a pocket knife and he would use that as the slide on his guitar and as traditional um, delta blues a lot of delta blues players do when they're going to use sli uh, do a slide technique his guitar is often tuned to drop d which um, if you don't know that's when the top string which is typically tuned tuned to e they tune it down and they're able to play uh, sort of bass, uh, bass rhythm, bass notes on the D string, and they can play their melody and whatnot. You you know use the slide on the lower the rest of the lower five strings, and either sing along or you know play playing along with that. And so if you listen to his most famous song, a uh, most well known song, is uh. Dark was the night, cold was the ground, which is essentially supposed to recreate um, the event of Christ's crucifixion. And now, so the original song did not have words. Uh, later editions or later variations, which may or usually they change the title of the song, but you could are based on the song. Um, it, it did not have words, and it was really supposed to recreate the atmosphere, what it was like um, during the crucifi crucifixion of Christ. And it's a really, um, it's. It, I think it does a great job. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, um, it probably be posted on the website at some point, bluelineage.com, um, but you can find it anywhere. And it has a very, uh, you know, kind of grim um obviously it was a sad event and the way it kind of flows and carries out uh he does even though there's no vocals he does add a sort of a he adds a hum a melodic hum that really 
in addition to a slide guitar, which is kind of a wailing, not wailing, but uh, I don't want to say scream either, but it's a very pronounced sound um, that really, uh, it really does a great job of setting that, setting the scene and the atmosphere of, you know, what you can only imagine uh, you know, people were going through at the time. Uh, if you were around Christ at those times in mourning. Um, and so that song uh, caught on. Uh, it was one of his most successful songs. And, you know, just to, it's just, it's just kind of groundbreaking because not only did he, it's a song itself, I think, transcends, you know, through history, uh, it's still holds up obviously as we talked about early recording technology was limited so some sometimes you either need to listen to modern perform performances of songs or you know just kind of have to remember keep in mind the limited limitations of recording technology um but either way uh it's a it's a really great um piece and it was actually included um when the voyager one Space Probe first launched, uh, included where I, I think they called it the Golden Record. I forget exactly what it was named, but it was the the record. I believe I do believe it was a record, like a phonograph record for a record player. Uh, but I could be wrong. It might have been a different device. But at based on the time, it, it would have had to been a record. Um, or maybe it could have been a tape. Tapes would have been. I believe it was a record. I'm I'm pretty sure. Anyways, so uh, when they launched Voyager One Space Probe, that's still it's still out there today, um, floating around space. Uh, there was this whole concept about if there's life out there or somebody out there in space, we want them to see like the most uh, incredible works. Uh, invented created by human humankind and this song was included on the music portion of that the record that they sent out out to space so that's a a fun fact about blind willie johnson um and i said as i said a lot of mystery is shrouded around him um i think his his exact birth place or date is unknown um i know his exact death date is not fully known but but he he was another there's a whole actual uh well several blues early blues well early black artists because not all of them were blues musicians that were buried in unmarked graves and were most all of all of them now i think yeah all of them now have been you know either marked or moved to another place uh, but uh, that's another big factor you know when you when somebody is when someone passes away and you know they're buried in an unmarked grave that's pro that's a sign that some of these artists were just on hard times but it's also a sign that the people were not already documenting your life and that's a huge piece when people do go back to document you um 
to look at your death certificates. You can at least gather that basic information. But for some of these artists, that's not possible because they're, you know, they weren't even really recorded um, as uh, with a specific death. Um, But uh, what is known about Blind Willie Johnson is that he um, um, he eventually he continued to tour. Uh, he had another major hit, um, a few major hits, um, and he record. He was able to record a little bit in addition to that song. Um, but he stopped recording um, on the onset of the depression. But he continued to perform after. And eventually he he passed away um, his house you know he he was success he was a successful musician like he, for that time he lived a a pretty good life um, but uh, unfortunately his house burned down um, and he passed away because he was when his house burned down he was sleeping on a mattress a damp mattress um i guess on basically still in where his house was on the foundation um and he caught pneumonia and then he was not admitted to a hospital and so he passed away a few days later so even though he was successful um there was some definitely still some you know status limitation uh how much was based on racism at the time I'm, I'm not sure um it's kind of the way that um it's all documented is um they don't really get into those specifics uh, but it was in the south uh he's he remained in texas um and so i don't you know it, i don't know i don't know what played into it uh, they also mentioned in in one uh biography i i don't recall which one, um, but that he, they didn't admit him because he was blind for, for some reason. So like I said, you know, this is, it's great. A lot of these artists are able to get some recording success. Um, they're able to kind of, you know, get this blues genre into the minds and hearts and ears of, of, uh, listeners, black and white listeners, uh, primarily at this point, black listeners, because all these would, would be um, considered race recordings, as we talked about, race recordings were supposed marketed or to be black recordings made for black audiences. Um, you know, that obviously other people listen to them, but that was the primary market and intention. So that was, that was good. Uh, but I think one of the unfortunate parts is that you know, a lot of, besides the documentation, a lot of the way their careers um, move forward after their their hits, uh, a lot of the times uh, it wasn't it wasn't great, uh, and of course they didn't get real recognition for the their legacy and the impact they made on music until much later down the road. Um, but it's it's a you know you could say in this timeline it's a step in the right direction but you always you know you kind of have to just with wc handy and mommy smith you you um 
recognize them for what they contributed um, and you you know you see their success but also for them and for you know us the consumers for them you know obviously they had to make some sacrifices which may be uh, seen as not not uh, something that they shouldn't have done um, or other people will say like this is just that was just something they had to do um, speaking specifically about like the menstrual shows uh, done by WC Handy um, it was something they something they had to do to get there and then down the road you know how does that weigh on you and then from the consumer's perspective like how does you know how do you, gen- different generations view you how did you know their peers in general at the time view them and how much you know does that weigh on them and how does that impact their success down the road and how you know things kind of end in the case of blind willie johnson you know he's a, a deeply religious man and i think you know he for him um success definitely looked different um in the south and he was able to gain a lot of success and live a pretty good life um especially in his in his eyes but i think you know and in this case looking back you know you kind of feel that his life would have been much much different if you know it was it was later on essentially but you have to take kind of take it for what it is of course um and what's interesting about blind willie johnson is i said you know because he because he was religious i think it brought blues into the church a little bit more in that sound into the church more than other musicians because many of the later musicians even though they may have been religious the genre itself was as i was saying was it's seen as untamed um and taboo and so a lot of it really ended up kind of going against the church the church did not want you know any of that um association so blind willie johnson kind of sets us up for for the contrast that we'll see uh, later down the road and i think the next artist actually is a good example of that um and maybe one of the most famous artists um for this time period and maybe the one one of the, one of the most uh, successful artists early artists blues artists uh ever um until we get to maybe robert johnson the lore of robert johnson um and so this artist on the timeline if you look down the next artist is charlie patton and charlie patton um which interestingly enough i think that um just in modern times a lot of people have really focused on charlie patton's race uh if you ever if you look on i think if you just did like a google search i know mine probably won't come up that way because i look um my Google search, you know, is gonna pull up a lot of blues, and more. It's, the algorithm is gonna be deeply entrenched in some more, uh, I guess, nerdy blues topics and some other people. But I think if you just did a general a search on Charlie Patton, pull up some of the more recent articles, there's a lot of uh, focus, I think, now retrospectively on Charlie Patton's race because he was uh, mixed with, uh, he was black, white. And Native American. I don't, I've never really seen anything more in depth on that. So it's kind of a. It's not. It's pretty. Um, what's the word? It's not very uh, in depth. It's pretty vague, as far as you know him being mixed. I think it became um, more of an interest because the blues, of course, is a a deeply black genre, and and uh, mixed race individuals, you know, interracial 
um, relationships and all of that, even though it's been occurring for a long time, um, the focus and I think social acceptability and social focus on it was much more recent. So, I'd, so that may have been another avenue that you've heard of Charlie Patton, but but Charlie Patton really is uh, one of the most successful early uh, Delta Blues musicians. Um, he's been referred to as the king of the Delta Blues. And he was what he was, as I we mentioned uh, in the last episode, he was uh, a songster, which were early music performers, um, generally in the South, who uh, traveled around uh, together and performed not only blues, but a lot of other early music genres like ragtime and performed ballads and, you know, different show tunes. Um, and so, so he was more or less formally trained. He played with uh, some different musicians in his area, but he, you know, that, that Delta blues, he was in Mississippi. Um, and by the way, Texas, where Blind Willie Johnson was in Mississippi, are really the two hubs where you'll hear kind of back and forth, like this is where the blues, you know, originated. So on one side, we have Blind Willie Johnson as our Texas example, and we have Charlie Patton, who was from Mississippi, um, and that was really a hub, and he actually grew up around a number of pretty well-known musicians, which we'll speak about in a moment. But Charlie Patton, most importantly was supposedly tutored um, by uh, by Henry Sloan, who, you know, as far as people's word and limited documentation that we have uh, for that time, Henry Sloan is considered maybe one of the, the, the earliest uh, blues players known. Uh, so he... So Charlie Patton learned a lot from him. He learned from uh, some other uh, players who who uh, helped him become well-versed in some other tunes as a songster. He didn't only play the blues, but the blues definitely became his focus um, and what he was most well-known for. Blues, of course, was one of the hotter, newer sounds at the time. It stood out as uh, breaking a lot of rules. And it was also just, you know, it kind of followed the social uh, views of the blues at the time as untamed. The blues, you know, you had these musicians who were kind of coming up the ranks and they were playing, you know, Blind Willie Johnson had his contribution as far as his his slide style and Charlie Patton had a very unique rhythmic uh, playing style, very complex rhythmic playing style. So a lot of people were just adding this and it was just kind of, these sounds were not sounds that people had heard before, so it kind of, it, it you know it was an unta- untamed music discipline in itself, but also you know when you ever have whenever you have these newer genres that people haven't heard before that are kind of breaking on the scene, you attract a lot of young people, younger people, younger listeners, and so you, the whole thing becomes uh, uh, new to a certain extent, new socially, new culturally, uh, and it and so you're just gonna get a lot of uh, formation you know, new formations on, on many different levels. And so it, it kind of appears to be, and in many ways is untamed and new. Uh, 
not only in music and song form, but also the, the crowd that you're attracting. Uh, so that's kind of why, you know, perhaps the mainstream or certain areas of society are going to push back a little bit on it because it's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's covering a lot of topics that are seen as not socially acceptable or, or taboo by, by the mainstream. So Charlie Patton was also really known for his showmanship. Uh, he's one of the, the earlier players who was, you know, doing different guitar tricks. He played behind his head. He would throw his guitar up in the air. And so he was just really a really good uh, messenger for the blues and I think captures uh, the essence of, you know, not necessarily Delta Blues, man. I think when you think of the Delta Blues, uh, people think of more of like a subdued uh, individual who's kind of just a man who's kind of voicing his his uh, pains and hardships and life journey, you know, the good and the bad, the heartbreak. And Charlie Patton had definitely had a lot of elements of that. Uh, if you really listen to the content and lyrics of his music, but also, you, you know, you look at his showmanship and some of those aspects and kind of his reputation with uh, his relationships and the ladies. He was, he embodied almost a, almost kind of that rock star uh, image that we'll see more down the road, but he being a guitar person that at this time before amplification it's a very much a solo pursuit and so he was largely playing on his own and putting on some great shows and and that definitely is enough besides you know sometimes it overshadowed his great uh playing ability i think but regardless uh looking back historically i think everything is kind of captured and Charlie Patton is uh, is definitely one of the most successful, first successful blues artists. Um, so as I kind of mentioned before, uh, Charlie Patton, because of where he started playing, Mississippi, uh, early Delta blues man, so he was within the, the community, he, he was known, pretty well known, and so there were other blues musicians that he was able to play with, such as Willie Brown, Tommy Johnson, and of course the great Sunhouse. Um, they they toured, uh, recorded together um, in some a couple instances, uh, and and uh, you know became definitely played off each other. If you if you uh, read into them and listen to some of the recordings, they covered each other's music, and I think you know really helped all together to shape the future sound of blues but uh charlie Patton definitely stands out um and he also influenced the next generation uh you can hear some clear um either exact title remakes with the same title or very heavily based on some of charlie Patton's music uh one big one is holland wolf's holland wolf Smokestack Lightning um, is based on um, Charlie Patton's uh, Moon Moon Going Down. Yes. Uh, and um, I 
And there are other examples uh, of that, I believe, um, later on. I know uh, Spoonful by Eric Clapton or Cream. I don't remember if he made that when he was with Cream or not. But Eric Clapton's Spoonful um, is based on a song of the same name. I believe it's the exact same title of Charlie Patton. Um, but there's other examples um, out there for sure. Um, but specifically, Smokestack Lightning within that blues genre, uh, within kind of that next generation, um, is uh, I think one of the more well known examples. Um, And I guess another important note is that Blind Lemon Jefferson, who I don't really, t I don't talk, about, I don't have on the timeline, but is an important artist because he was one of the first to record, first Delta country blues type player to record a hit in 1926, which opened the door for musicians like Charlie Patton uh, to, and these other musicians I mentioned to uh, start recording and. Of course, their success uh, became even bigger uh, than his. Um, but Charlie, one of Charlie Patton's, uh, there's a couple examples uh, of uh, songs. I think that Charlie Patton, number one, you can see that um, lyrically, his songs really reflect uh, the blues style as far as uh, sometimes uh, they were, since his songs were kind of put into a commercial pop context, uh, people not, didn't necessarily read into his lyrics and what he was trying to talk about. Um, it was more, you know, designed for entertainment. But when you really look back into some of Charlie Patton's songs, uh, he gets into... You know, they follow a a pretty traditional or common blues flow as far as addressing, and once again, this is kind of in contrast to um, Blind Willie Johnson's style as far as his music was very blues-oriented, but the lyrical content was kind of a gospel, or at least following that, the lyrics itself, the content was gospel, not necessarily following that, that gospel uh sound but the content was very biblical religious gospel so Charlie Patton really um, is the first uh, artist we have on here that really is um, kind of bringing it all together uh, lyrically sound wise and of course innovating and contributing to the genre and if you look at songs like uh, Pony Blues which is probably his biggest hit um, talks about um, some different um, I mean it goes a lot of it goes around relationships um, or encounters with women but he also gets a little bit into some social he talks about social status and some social issues that are impacting him specifically as a as a black man um, and another part, important part, though, is just his guitar. The way he plays guitar is very, uh, very unique. Um, I actually have, let me see, I have a quote somewhere 
um, from an article titled or section titled Pony Blues and Encyclopedia of Great Popular Song Recordings. Um, Robert Palmer notes that the guitar part strongly accents the first beat of each measure while the vocal is just as strongly accented on beat four. Um, Patton carries the note that begins on each accented fourth beat over into the next measure, producing the polyrhythmic effect of a three beat measure followed by a five beat measure over clearly delineated four beat measures of the guitar part. Um, and so this is really trying to tie uh, Charlie Patton using his voice as not only you know, an instrument as far as vocals, um, but also as a rhythmic device um, accompanying his guitar and creating sort of a polyrhythmic effect, which is interesting just because this is us. These are solo performances, so it's him as his guitar. He was also known for um, sort of tapping on his guitar in a drum-like fashion. Um, as, as another rhythmic element, which you'll hear in his music. So all this kind of comes together to create kind of a polyrhythmic effect in different ways, different on different songs. And that ties back to polyrhythms in Africa, specifically West Africa, of course. The modern music tradition is tied heavily to West Africa, but rhythm um it, it, complex rhythms polyrhythms you know can be seen across africa um, um and so this is something that ties you know those two things together and that's something that they highlight and polyrhythm is something that we'll come back to um on a number of different um areas as we go but specifically when we get as we see funk forming funk was a really big return to polyrhythm or with a big emphasis. Um, but at this point, it's interesting just because I think a lot of people think of polyrhythm in a drumming context. A lot of people don't necessarily take it out and think of rhythm um, at, you know, it, as uh, outside of a beat. Um, people don't necessarily think of rhythm as notes. But of course, um, you know, it's... There's more than that, and I think think specifically with Charlie Patton is interesting, just because we're now we're combining guitar uh, vocals and some percussion with him, you know, tapping it or hitting his guitar, all all in the in, in the rhythmic context. Um, so I think that's something just to keep in mind as we move forward, because polyrhythm is a huge um, concept within the lineage as far as. Um, you know, starting kind of being recreated uh, in the blues, tying back to Africa, and as we move forward, uh, kind of combining and moving through uh, through the timeline. Um, you know, it can be seen in other in other disciplines. De definitely, you can see it in jazz, uh, but um, I think it's a context that people don't necessarily always associate with the blues. Um, I think, and so Charlie Patton is is an innovator in this way, but it also gets passed along um, and specifically reemerges in funk. But 
it's definitely a um, a point of emphasis, something to really listen for when you're listening to Charlie Patton's recordings. Um, and then another uh, hit and important song in his catalog is um, another uh, high water, high water everywhere, um, which is uh, regarding the great Mississippi floods of 1927. Basically, during that year, or in a short time period, there was just like a whole lot of catastrophic events that that uh, occurred and it kind of culminated with the the floods, Mississippi overflowing and really devastating and everyone who lived there and of course this hit Charlie Patton hard because this was his area um, where he you know lived grew up and impacted everyone heavily but he also emphasizes how it impacted black residents more just because uh, more to lose and and uh, more difficulty in in recovering, you know, as far as getting disaster relief and the resources to you know, fix their communities, their towns, their homes. Um, so that was a sort of a, a a note of political and social importance. And so Charlie Patton kind of threw that song and Pony Blues and other songs that. That real that emphasis on addressing social issues, um, personal issues tied to uh, cultural and social uh, issues such as race, um, and also just cultural pho- phenomenons or just personal experiences surrounding relationships and just other hardships that occurred in. In the environment, different life struggles. Uh, this was, you know, of course, a big component of the blues. But uh, as far as Charlie Patton goes on our timeline, he is one of the first to bring that out um, and make it a blues hit and become very successful with that. Uh, so Charlie Patton is another one individual who exacts um, his exact birth location or date I believe it's his birth date is not known but but um, his later years are well pretty well documented um, but he has a ton of if you go through his catalog he has quite a few um songs that would be recreated in both the blues and rock genres. Um, Like when I speak, when I bring up Spoonful by Eric Clapton, there are some other examples like that, but at that point you're kind of getting into this, this, uh, you know, rock and roll British, um, British blues rock. So, you know, you can see how some of these early artists, like Charlie Patton, were kind of already in the works and their stylings already were kind of building into some of these later genres that we'll 
talk about on the timeline. Um, and so lastly, the last person we'll talk about today um, is not actually a musician per se, um, but a very important individual as far as uh, the awareness and um, innovation within uh, black music, uh, the black community, and the blue lineage, and that is Jack L. Cooper, Jack Leroy Cooper, um, who was the first black radio announcer and the first radio announcer on this timeline. And there are a number of others I'll bring up because I think um, black radio is not always recognized as a key component in the uh, the the shaping and the uh, building of black modern music. Uh, I think naturally we associate radio and music to some extent, but I think some of the, the different, the ways that they contributed and the, the way um, black, black entertainment was carved out uh, in society by some of these black radio announcers is not necessarily as well known as maybe it should. Um, but Jack L. Cooper, um, as I said, first black radio announcer. He was also the first black radio programmer, which is key because uh, there were black personalities in radio. Um, but those individuals were not necessarily uh, in the command of the content they were putting out or they were pushed to uh, further some of the stereotypical uh, content that was already out there. Like we, I talked about in vaudeville, early vaudeville minstrel shows, of course, but I think it more reflected vaudeville performances where, um, where you had a lot of uh, non-black uh, writers and producers trying to create content that did not necessarily make the black community look good. In other words, you saw continued stereotypes, things that they found entertaining or mocking um, of black culture, or just not, you know, it was certainly not something that was informational or something that necessarily built on dignity. You know, even if, if, even, even if it wasn't, there was a lot of racist stuff out there. You know, I always want to make that clear because that was that's very evident. But also, I, I want to say that even if it wasn't that, there's still going to be, it still was not something that informed, it wasn't something that provided something worthwhile to the black community, even if it wasn't something that necessarily took away from them. So that one of the, one of the keys for Jack Cooper as a programmer is, you know, he was just bringing some stuff I think we think of now as basic, um, like news programs, um, sports casting. Uh, he brought uh, different, was raising different community issues and awareness. There was something called. He was. It was. A, he did a a segment uh, at one point that was. That was uh, like if you haven't if you lost contact with somebody, you know, he put that out there to try to um, reconnect those people. Um, so just just stuck basic, I think, 
what we think would think of as basic things. But, you know, if you don't have that sort of uh, that outlet or um, programming, you know, within your community, in the black community, uh, you know, it's a, a big difference. There's there's black newspapers. And as I'll mention, you know, he did work. He started working uh, as a critic. Well, one of his early jobs was he was a theater critic for the Chicago Defender, which is one of the very early black newspapers um, in Chicago. Um, oh, and I guess this is a quick note. He, for his other jobs, he uh, he didn't have any formal education. He uh, left high school, I'm uh, sorry, high school. He left elementary school um, in the fifth grade. And he actually had a, I guess what you consider, consider pretty extensive amateur amateur boxing career or short professional boxing career. I'm not sure how it's categorized. Um, and then he was a vaudeville performer for a short while, but at the end of the day, you know, he wanted to, that's where he kind of learned to write and create skits and, you know, produce. And by the end of the day, he wanted to do something that was going to lift up the black community. And, you know, he's, he wanted to move into radio. Um, his early experience with radio was something similar to what I mentioned before, where it was not, you know, they were kind of comedian. He didn't want to be comedian. They were comedic sketches, which were not, you know, great for the, the dignity and the, for the black community. It's, you know, I think I've, I think I've spoken on that enough for you all to understand what I mean or I'm suggesting. So uh, that was in D.C. where he first started. Didn't really, wasn't really feeling it. So he eventually went back to Chicago and he got um, an opportunity to to start a one-hour segment, one-hour weekly segment on a Chicago station, uh, Chicago WSBC World Stage Battery Company. Um, and it was called the All Negro Hour at the time. And once one hour, once a week, and it was, you know, basically he convinced um, the the company um, producer or programmer that, you know, there was a huge black audience um, within whatever the range is, Chicago area, whatever the range for the station was, um, probably spread out maybe a little further than that. There was a huge black market that, you know, radio stations just weren't getting because they weren't programming black content. So starting with this one hour segment, he was able to kind of he was able to start that and uh, and he had and this was you know one of the first black producers or programmers at this time he was mostly an announcer but you know it was his hour so he was able to to have creative control over that and and expanded you know this was one of the first opportunities for for that to occur and to create that black programming black focused programming and even though it was created for black audiences as expanded of course you know non-black listeners also listened to these shows and it became pretty popular. Um, another another big deal that Jack L. Cooper did or created or was one of the first to do, if not the first, um, was to take his record player and to play records over over the air, uh, which prior to him, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it was mostly live performances, orchestral performances, basically live music um, that was being you know, pl- 
played over air. It was not no nobody was playing uh, records, uh, as you would as you would imagine today. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine a radio station that isn't that is playing you know live performances, which it, it does occur, definitely. But you know, the mass majority is without doubt uh, recorded. But of course, completely different technologies, completely different situations. But uh, th- something to think about. But it's pretty huge when you think about, um, you know, that decision because it it gave him a lot of a, a very um, major ability to promote the music that and put the music that he was interested out there. Because you're not, you know, if you don't have the resources to bring in, you know, live bands, live commercial bands, um, even though, you know, a black band would have been a little bit easier to book because. Um, it's, it's a much smaller cir- circuit, much smaller performance. Um, you know, the pay was not as well, which we'll talk about a little bit in a moment. Um, so it was definitely possible, but obviously it's not anything compared to the ability to purchase um, a popular band or a band you're interested in, uh, interested a band's record that you're interested in, and to play that on your radio station. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, really a game changer. And um, because he played jazz and gospel mostly, he didn't really play blues. Um, he was, you know, pretty religious. And once I, once again, you know, there was a uh, line, you know, between the religious community and the blues community. However, there were, you know, popular bl- blues um, hits or artists who, you know, were you could kind of navigate that with. But the most of his records were jazz and gospel because jazz and gospel, of course, was... Um, much more accepted um, in black and white uh, communities. And so he, regardless, you know, this was a big exposure for people who hadn't heard uh, jazz or gospel music and some blues um, to to hear this music and get exposed to that. And uh, one of the reasons I include him on, on that time, on this timeline is, is because of that. I mean, that's the clear music tie um, and a clear spreading awareness and just the whole idea of, of you know, playing records on air, which is uh, groundbreaking. Uh, but also, you know, he was a, a big community person. And even though, you know, I think, you know, I think to some degree, as we'll talk about later with some of these other radio um, DJs, you know, not p- deciding to not play, you know, having feelings about some of the blues and the outlook and kind of, you know, kind of making a little bit of a delineation between, you know, these two different black communities that were kind of forming. I think, you know, it's, you can say what you want about it. Uh, I think it's, you know, in hindsight, maybe it's unfortunate, but overall, though, Jack L. Cooper, clearly, you know, he, you know, made his huge contributions as far as carving out black entertainment, um, you know, black radio, uh, black getting black music out there but on but on top of that you know after that he was a huge community service person gave back to the chicago area you know just black entertainment in general so he's a pretty huge figure early on when you when you really look around um you know during those times um in entertainment sphere and the music sphere you know he's you know, in you know 1929 that was a pretty you know it's a pretty significant move you know black media as I was saying, like black media was kind of limited to newspapers at that point as far as creative content. Um, and that was really the way to get 
to pass messages at the time. The Chicago Defender was was one of the big ones. And I don't know if I mentioned this when talking about the Great Migration, but the Chicago Defender was a huge... um, a huge uh, advertiser or promoter of trying to recruit people coming from the South to the North. Um, uh, the Black, in case you didn't weren't listening to the last episode, the, the Great Migration was a topic covered then. Um, so yeah, it kind of all ties together. Chicago Defender, you know, uh, Jack L. Cooper worked there early, came back to Chicago again. Um, Chicago was a big area where one of the few areas where um you know if you had the expertise uh, some backing or you know some something you know you you'd be able to carve out a little space with some creative control in in media or you know whether it's newspaper and now radio because of jack o cooper um so yeah i think it's clear why it's on the timeline and um, major contributor, um, an important person in in history, um, including you know this blue lineage, Black American music history as well. And so this kind of leads us to the last couple um, uh, terminology items for today, which is the first one is the urban theater circuit also known as the Shetland Circuit. Um, so this is, you know, um, the urban theater circuit is basically the proper way to say it today because, you know, if you just refer it to it uh, casually as the Shetland Circuit in conversation, it's not really um, it's frowned upon because it's kind of a, seen as demeaning kind of slang, um, if you know what shillings are, if not, you can look it up. I mean, the the term itself is not demeaning, but uh, there's more of the way it was used at the time is what made it um, demeaning. Um, so yeah, the, that urban theater circuit is basically a group of, of uh, theaters that were catered to uh, black performers and their and black audiences in that case um, there were you know a ton of black performers at the time got their start there because there just wasn't you know if you were trying to play in in predominantly white theaters it was not going to it just was not gonna work out as an entertainer unless you did what we said before with as a some of the early uh, uh, entertainers slash musicians did and performed in vaudeville and minstrel shows. But at that point, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're making a, a decision as far as, as far as uh, sacrificing reputation and dignity, perhaps. And even that, and even at that point, you're not going to be as paid as well. And you may not, you know, it doesn't guarantee success, but, Though some of those individuals did end up making more uh, financial success than some of these uh, some of these uh, performers in the urban theater circuit, just because that circuit in general was just not great paying, but it was it gave way 
to uh, a lot of great performers who were able to shape their sound and you know kind of have some creative control essentially and shape their sound and become pretty big um i know that um ma rainey was an early one and then you know later on a little bit later there's bb king there's muddy waters and then super later to what to a point where people might not even consider it part of the urban um theater circuit was you'll have like the jackson five and some of the artists then um you know depending who you talk to you know it kind of spans um different times um i know on the timeline here it's it's this talks about the 1930s through the 1960s which is pretty broad um the, the term shitland circuit specifically usually spans a shorter amount of time than the urban theater secret circuit uh, people continue to refer um, to late much later because urban theater um, is still a term that people will use for for certain types of um, black uh, comedic um, plays performances that that uh, happen um, and most of them were pretty small theaters. I I have a had a list somewhere, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, but the major, it's it's readily available if you want to look it up online. It's not going to be, well, it might be on the website. I might add it on there actually, uh, but it's not there right now. That's a that's an important part. Uh, but the major theaters, well known theaters, were the Apollo in Harlem, the Regal in Chicago and the Royal in Baltimore. Those were the kind of the big three. Um, and, you know, if you made it, if you played at those theaters, I think there was one more that was, um, but those were the, those were the big three that, you know, if you played at those theaters, uh, you know, you, you basically thought or did make it, um, made a career in entertainment. And, uh, and eventually, of course, the reason that, the circuit sort of um, declined was not really, you know, any intention. It was just, you know, there was, you know, you had um, black performers playing in, in white shows. And, of course, there was the new sector that was kind of becoming, uh, growing, which was the integrated shows. Because, um, you know, early on shows were, black performers were really, led to, really limited to playing um, for black audiences specifically if you're playing blues or any of these early genres that are on the lineage um if you played jazz or some of the other ones you you know they were already performing for white audiences um depending uh, where you are or who you are the type of jazz you're playing but just generally speaking um, but blues on the other hand and of course the same thing happens with rock and r&b early r&b uh you know you're playing for black audiences and then depending on how successful you are, you might be playing for for white audiences, but in the middle, you have uh, the sector that was probably causing the most stir was these sort of integrated shows because a lot of these integrated shows were, um, were you know, being pulled in by young people. You have these new genre, like the blues, which is kind of all already underground, and... And it's being played 
to some extent on radio or people are getting, you know, when through recordings, you hear it, but, you know, this this music is not necessarily available to white audiences, specifically some of the artists that are considered to be a little bit more, you know, rowdy and untamed, which at that point, you know, now that we're coming into the 19, the late 1920s, early 1930s, now it's just kind of gathering, you know, a lot, a pretty strong reputation for just being, you know, people would call it like the devil's music, um, call it, you know, the just overly sexualized, you know, taboo, inappropriate, talking about drugs and alcohol, and, you know, there was definitely some of that content in it, in that, but a lot of it was just the lure, the lore, you know, getting built, built bigger and bigger to try to contrast it, you know, against, you know, what young people should be doing. You know, they should be kind of following tradition, you know, sticking with uh, some religious beliefs as guidance and not kind of getting ca- uh, caught up in all these other ideas that um, were being stirred, st- uh, topics that were being talked about in some of these other genres. And so, so I mean, it's kind of interesting. I'll probably get into it a little bit more on another episode, but you have these different markets starting to audience market starting to grow and the integrated crowd was you know a lot of young people who or just people in general but a lot of young people who are getting were getting um, word of these recordings and hearing them and not having a place to go um, because you're not necessarily going to go to um, these black locations but um, some of them you know started to to become more integrated um, and some you know promoters show promoters were just starting to create, you know, specifically integrated shows where, you know, before integration would have been like, if you go to a white show, there might be a, you know, black section where people can, you know, sit, uh, you know, maybe depending where it is. Um, So that, in that, in that sense, that was considered integrated, but these shows that were popping up were just, you know, people kind of coming together, which was just, uh, um, you know, it's a pretty, at the time, it was pretty, you know, radical, uh, a radical concept, and it was interesting because, you know, both sides, the black community was, you know, kind of like, you know, why are these, why is this happening, why are people performing for this, you know, they're interacting with our oppressor, and different things are going to happen, of course, both religious communities on black and white side were not really for this sort of mixture, and, on the white side, of course, you know, it's pretty well documented, some of the racist ideas that were behind and motivating that. And so you kind of, as we move forward, you, you kind of see these three different sections, and I'll probably talk, speak on them a little bit more, because I think some of those artists specifically, um, you know, kind of crossed into these different areas and faced various, uh, you know, support or, um, or friction. Um, but as we're moving from the urban theater circuit, that's where we kind of are getting some of these these different uh, these different uh, situations, audience situations. Um, and then, last but not least, um, one of the more important contributions that I want to cover in this episode, even though it's not really included with any of these individuals that I've talked about, as far as a instrument or a device that they use, but kind of being consistent with 
the uh, oncoming invention of all these electrical um, electrical based technologies. Uh, I just want to cover the electric guitar real quick, um, and I'll be spoken on a little bit more in some of our later later artists, but you know, not really for a while actually. Uh, it kind of catches on a little bit later. The, the electrical the electric guitar really was first utilized um, in in Hawaii. Uh, it was actually kind of the the uh, first one was designed with uh, Hawaiian lap uh, steel guitars in mind. Uh, they were very uh, into the the sort of horizontal uh, you know lap slide guard slide guitar technique. And some people will say that's where it came from. I mean that's another dispute um, that really you know I'm not sure. I know the Delta Blues and Hawaiian slide guitar. Um, are both, uh, you know, really the first. I don't know which one. There's a dispute among how Delta Blues musicians came up with slide guitar, and a lot of it goes back to that. Likely, there were there was some encounter there where um, people were exposed to um, the Hawaiian style of, of lap slide guitar. I'm not really sure. That's not a so that's something I'll have to look into in the future. I know it's a it's a debate. I don't know how much evidence, you know, which side has the most evidence and which which way to sway. Uh, but I know that's that's out there if you want to do some research, and I'll, I'll probably look into it also at once and discuss it. Um, so the the electrical guitar comes along. Um, and was invented by Adolf Rickenbacker, which if you may are you may be familiar with Rickenbacker guitars. They're still around, um, but they were among the first. And then soon after, um, a lot of you know, by the time that guitar came to market or was ready to go to market, um, a lot of the other guitar makers were kind of already lined up and ready to 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 um, put their guitars out there, but it definitely, you know, changed um, the ability for the guitar to be featured in songs before then it was, you know, maybe a rhythm instrument at most, um, but of course, as we we're kind of talking about, it shaped the blues uh, as a solo genre because you can't really have the guitar be the lead instrument and also have all these other vocals going around or having all these other horns or other instruments that project a lot better so it was really you know it's it's interesting how the guitar became kind of the, the instrument of the blues and you know it's like the guitar found the blues and the blues found the guitar kind of you know kind of pairing it's an interesting pairing and how that kind of evolved over time and all of a sudden you know you have the electric guitar come into play and that really um, you know shapes the blues further and really allows the guitar to be taken into these to grow into these other genres where you are being accompanied by uh by other instruments you know the blue takes it from a solo kind of you have charlie Patton who's already creating these polyrhythms and these different sounds and it's almost like you know what would have happened if you know the electric guitar was already around we you know would, it, would this have occurred in this way or or would have uh, would he have 
you know, created these sounds or would he have, you know, would he, would the same result occurred if he had access to electric guitar and was part of a band or, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, like, because it was kind of created in isolation in a lot of ways um, and not allowed to expand. And by the time it was ready to expand and be, and we saw this music kind of be transferred over to electric guitar and larger, uh, bigger bands and performances that were able to be led by the guitar, you know, it was kind of already, uh, it's kind of already well established and, you know, guitars, blues guitars didn't pick up electric guitar to a little bit later. Um, but it's, 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 it's an interesting thought, um, because of the timing, you know, how, you know, this changed the genre itself, um, and allowed it to expand and what would have occurred, what, what, um, what would not have occurred um, if it was for the if it was not for the invention of electric guitar or how the electric guitar really impacted the evolution of blues um, and I think the other part big part of it is you know that happens a little bit later is of course electric bass guitar is electric bass um, is another instrument that's completely different if you've ever listened to an acoustic bass or even a stand-up bass for that matter um, it's it you know the ability to amplify bass sounds uh, it's a huge game changer and of course that's another one that is around of course around early on in blues and establishes kind of that that uh that bass line but evolves you know with rock and then really evolves with funk and of course becomes a core component of both funk and then the following genre of hip-hop so, you know, I think the whole electric idea and the timing is very interesting um, as far as it impacts this blue lineage specifically. Because I think if you go to some of the other the other genres that kind of correspond or are developing um, concurrently, like jazz um, or gospel, most more so jazz, and how I think that that genre is really uh, preserved in a lot of ways. You know, of course, we we can go over time and look at a lot of the modern jazz artists and say how you know they innov- innovated and changed. And you know, you have different subgenres of jazz. You have you know free jazz, and some of these will imp- implement instruments differently. But as far as the actual evolution, um, I think it's interesting how you know it really seems like the blues uh, at this time with these artists and because of the untamed and creative uh the creativity that was going around it was kind of like a something that was being contained and held and once the electric guitar kind of allowed uh this quick rapid evolution changing of roles uh for the guitar to become forefront all of a sudden you can have a band around you it just really was kind of an explosion and it just you know shot up and we saw you know rapid evolution of all these different genres so it's it's interesting it's something that we'll bring up again um but once again you know it's great to to cover another section of this timeline thanks for tuning in um once again like and subscribe like and subscribe uh instagram blue underscore lineage um and also twitter uh, blue lineage on there as well um social media hasn't really gotten going hopefully by the time you watch this episode i'll be wrong and it has uh, but at this point uh just really focusing on releasing each episode at a time 
uh, as we progress through the timeline. And then, as I said before, once we get through the timeline, I think the show will have taken a taken shape, and we'll we'll figure out how we want to proceed, and probably we'll have a more active active uh, events and experiences outside of outside of this podcast. But for now, uh, this is about it. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and I'll catch you next time.